Hi, welcome. We begin a <coughs> exploration in this new series as part of the Wounded Angels Network. We're going to be exploring a theme called the Radical Christ. This is in cooperation and collaboration with Dharmagiri um, Sacred Mountain uh, Retreat Center um, with Tanisara and Kidisaro and I'm very grateful for the affiliation that goes back many years now and for the interfaith dialogue that I as a Christ follower have had with them as devout Buddhist mindfulness practitioners. The Radical Christ is going to be exactly that. It's an exploration into the roots of the word Jesus Christ that has become um, all too familiar and all too maligned and there would be some who would be saying to me, Peter, why are you even, even bothering having this conversation because the people who call themselves Christians seem so far removed from anything that the um, mythical Jesus or the Jesus of history, we're going to explore what all these terms mean and why are you even bothering to look at that? Well, the reason is that I think it's time in this modern era, in, in, in this millennium, that we do a critical re-examination of what exactly it means to be talking about the radical Christ. And, and I'm using the word radical very carefully um, as that which goes to the root of, the radix, um, the root of what the Christ really means. So I look forward to having you on this journey. It was Martin Luther King Jr., that great Southern Baptist preacher um, from the American Civil Rights Movement in the 60s who said uh, when he was preaching about Jesus' statement, the truth will set you free. Martin Luther King Jr. said, yes, indeed, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you very angry. <laughs> and so I hope to evoke um, some disturbance and some anger perhaps um, but most of all some interaction. Um, I have been exploring these themes in my uh, print column in a local uh, publication the Weekend Post here on the southern tip of Africa in Port Elizabeth and in the Eastern Cape and have had a lot of affirmation uh, from people who have said wow thank you for getting into this stuff and giving us some new angles. So. Um, you may get angry, uh, but hopefully you'll be stimulated by the conversation. Talking about anger, it was a couple of years ago that I was reflecting on my theological training many years ago in the 1970s um, and, and, and remembering that when I was studying in my very first year a subject called systematic theology, the entire first year was taken up by our professor teaching us all the heresies, all the, th the wrong teachings that the church councils in the first centuries of the church had deemed to be heretical. In other words, what he was doing in that entire first year was saying, it's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this. And I was reflecting on why 
you would take young minds wanting to study theology and teach them what theology wasn't. And then it dawned on me um, what a clever strategy it was because if you can exclude all the competition if you can say it's not that and that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and by the way this is also wrong and this is wrong and this is definitely wrong then you can corral everything to a very narrow stream of what you can then call orthodoxy a word that means a true faith true belief and I just got so angry thinking of of how I had been manipulated and all the students with me and corralled to never ever think outside of that box that had been defined as orthodox true faith that which is contained in the creed do not deviate well I think that kind of thinking is virtually impossible these days and that's probably why in South Africa there are very few universities that still have open and viable um, theological departments of divinity as they were called. They've all shut down. Um, probably rightly so because we live in a world that is far more diverse and where thinking is far more diverse and one cannot continue to say, not this, not this, not this, I'm not going to look there, I'm going to stay in my little echo chamber and only speak to those who think and speak like I do. And so we begin by uh, me owning that I'm going to go and look at some of these thoughts and some of the heretically labeled um, unorthodox thoughts about Jesus and about Christ and and of course the big heresy um, that came out of the early what is called the patristic period those first four or five centuries of the church's history the the, the big um, no-no was a um, way of thinking called Gnosticism Gnosticism um, Gnoso in Greek literally means to know um, and it means to know and perhaps a better uh, translation is not to know in a kind of arrogant way but a knowing which says I am acquainted with this um, hence the word agnoso because a is the uh, denier of the word that comes afterwards or the the negator of the word that comes afterwards. So, so agnos or, or an agnostic is somebody who says, hmm, I'm not sure, I don't know. And, and so I, I think being agnostic is a very creative space for anybody who's prepared to keep their mind open. Now I know this kind of thinking drives my fundamentalist colleagues wild. Um, one of them once said to me, Peter, the problem with you is your mind is so open, your brain is going to fall out. Well, <laughs> I'm happy to take the risk. Um, because I, I, I'm, I want to for, forever be curious. And I want to always be asking, hmm, this is interesting. Let's have a look at this. And, and I must say, I have, I have discovered in the last 15 or 10, 15 years of my life, a wonderful companion 
on this journey into Gnosticism, into Agnoso, and that is in the person of Carl Gustav Jung. Uh, Jung was born in the, at the end of the 19th century and he died in, the, in 1963. Um, he was an absolute intellectual giant, uh, one of those encyclopedic minds that, that took on everything and, and, and put together a compendium of work which the world is still exploring and continuing to dig into. And, and in Jung, I, I found a, a hero, if you like, and somebody who is prepared to think and ask questions that uh, formerly were not appropriate. <laughs> And so what Jung did, and his background came out of the very, very orthodox, true-believing um, church of his day. His father was a reformed Swiss pastor. And Jung grew up with this man who he wanted so badly to respect, wanted so badly to learn from, wanted so badly for his father to be a role model for him. But in his father, he saw a frightened depressed, shut-down person who was too afraid to ask any questions outside of the box. And, and in his writings in, in Memories, Dreams and Reflections, uh, which is the, the place I would start if you wanted to get to know about Jung, is to read Memories, Dreams and Reflections, MDR. Um, his, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book that kind of summarizes his, his journey. And in there he talks about how he, he got himself all excited when he was going to be confirmed by his own father and taught the faith. And, and when that was over, it had turned out to be a major anticlimax and something very sad for you. Um, because he had not had any real encounter with this thing that his father was trying to sell. He had found dogma, he had found uh, religious formulations, he had found creeds. But he had found no direct experience with something much bigger that he desperately wanted. And, and in that, I, I find myself resonating with Jung because at our deepest, deepest level of being, don't we really want to connect with something bigger than ourselves, something that draws the whole of life together and doesn't leave us with some empty, ritualized creed um, and dogma. So it's, it's with Jung and Jung's exploration of Gnosticism that, that I want to begin this conversation around the radical Christ. There's a delightful interview that I'm going to insert at this point in the video. Uh, it's an interview that is held by the BBC with Jung, right at the end of his life, he's an old man, and he gets asked about his faith. Um, have a look what he says. Two years before his death, he spoke to John Freeman of the BBC about his life. He was one of the great pioneers of modern psychiatry. Introvert, extrovert, archetypes, complex. These words we owe to Jung. But for years, he was dismissed by many as a mystic. Today, there's a growing realization that his work could help to reconcile science and religion. 
which for centuries have so disastrously divided the spirit of man against itself. What sort of religious upbringing did your father give you? Oh, we were Swiss reformed. And did he make you attend church regularly? Oh, well, that was quite natural. Yes. Everybody went to, 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 to church yes. on Sunday. And did you believe in God? Oh, yes. Do you now believe in God? Uh, now? Difficult to answer. I know. I, need, I don't need to believe. I know. Ah, I don't believe. I know. Gnosso. I know. I am acquainted with. And, and there is the contrast um, in that statement of Jung. Now, it will help us to understand that, and there are many layers to, to how Gnosticism came to be hoofed out um, over time from the church and from official dogma. Um, but, but one of the, the links of, that goes back into Greek philosophy through Gnosticism is what is called Neoplatonism. So the great philosopher Plato, who was a student and an admirer of Socrates, um, who wasn't present at the death of Socrates, but, but was shocked by the death of Socrates, who was judged by his Athenian counterparts to be a heretic, there's the word again, and um, having given false teaching, and he was forced to take poison and publicly kill himself. Um, and when Plato heard this, he, he was absolutely horrified that a man should be put to death for his beliefs. And Plato then goes on to build on, on that Socratic um, maxim which says, know yourself. Um, it came from the Oracle of Delphi, um, but it was very much part of, of Greek thinking, and Socrates promulgated and Plato afterwards, know yourself. And so for Plato, um, and for the Neoplatonists, those who came after Plato, um, knowledge of that which is bigger than ourselves, knowledge of, call it the divine if you like, call it soul if you like, call it life with a capital L, something bigger than ourselves is knowable by every person who's prepared just to open themselves to some kind of contemplative practice to consider, to contemplate, to examine to dig into, to be curious about all of these dynamics, not just simply to take something on face value and say, oh, well, this is what the creek, this is what I have to believe, this is what I should believe, but to gnosso for yourself, to explore for yourself, to know, not because you've been told it is so, but to know by direct experience of being of putting yourself in the place of experience. And Plato told a beautiful story to illustrate how, how trapped we can become in, in dogma and being told what life is about and not exploring for ourselves. Plato says, would you imagine that we are in a cave and we've been chained inside the cave 
so that all we can do is look at the wall of the cave. Behind us there is a large fire and people are coming and going behind us and so the light of the fire projects these shadows onto the wall of the cave. But that's all we see are these shadows of, of things that are going on behind us but we can't turn around, we are chained. How would it be, says Plato, if, if somebody could be loosened from those chains, not only to see what was going on behind them, but to also discover that there was a way out of the cave and to, to move towards the light, get outside of the cave and to see the reality outside the cave of a much bigger, much more expanded world. Wouldn't that be wonderful, says Plato. And, and then, how could a person who have, has glimpsed that then try and go and communicate to those who are still chained looking only at the shadows against the wall, the shadow show? Um, how will that person who has seen the truth then communicate that to those who are still chained? That is the challenge. The challenge of, of knowing, of experiencing um, a mystical direct experience of divinity. So, so let me just unpack this word mystical um, because it's going to come up a lot. Um, Jung was accused of being a mystic. People were afraid and he himself as a scientist didn't want to be called a mystic because then people would find it easy to write his work off. And so he, he walks this very fine line of having these deep gnoso experiences in himself of being and, and the platonic thing of getting outside the cave and, and, and exploring the unconscious through dreams and, and insights and intuitions and, and, and going through all sorts of ancient medieval texts and, and finding that there's this whole collective unconscious history of, of humanity that we are these spiritual beings who, who have a, a capacity to know things beyond our own limited consciousness uh, on the one hand and on the other hand Jung is the scientist he, he's, a, he's a medical doctor he's a psychiatrist he wants to be an empirical scientist he wants to be clinical he wants to be logical um, and, and stick with that discipline and so that's what makes him so brilliant because he, he manages to synthesize and hold together those tensions that he doesn't become some otherworldly unrelated ungrounded unrooted mystic floating away but but a deeply practical person working with his psychiatric practice helping people through their neuroses through their psychological mind states of suffering but at the same same time grounding them in this deep deep consciousness that today we would probably call spirituality so so what is a mystic the definition of a mystic is somebody who is able to have a direct and unmediated, and I'll come back to that, an unmediated experience of the divine. What do I mean? Well, the truth about most religious practices is that they are centered around the experience of one person who has that mystical, direct, unmediated, in other words, they're not a mediator, it's a direct, that person encounters the divine directly. Mystical experience, and then comes and tells others, the people back in the cave, hey, I've had this amazing experience. And then the people in the cave, the shadow watchers, say, what did you do? 
And, and, and the person who's had a direct experience says, well, I, you know, I was doing this and I was doing this and I was doing this and I was doing this. And the people say, well, let us go and do that as well. Let's follow these steps. Make a list. Give us a recipe. We'll go and follow the recipe and hopefully we'll have the same experience. Of course, it doesn't work like that. But it is the basis of how religions are formed. All religions. There's the pioneering direct experience of the founder and then there are those who follow the ritual and the recipe in the hope of having that direct encounter. Instead of allowing themselves simply to open to the experience of their unique being so that they can encounter in, from their own context not trying to replicate somebody else's recipe, but from their own context, create an encounter with the bigger picture outside of the cave of ritual and entrapment. So it's this mystical reality that for me is what makes Jesus so radical. And we're going to explore how how the Christ notion, the whole idea of the Christ um, transforms our understanding of who we are as humans. But we'll get to that. Right now, I simply want you to, to notice that Jesus, whether it's Jesus of Nazareth, and, and we have to admit we're going to, we, we don't know much about Jesus of Nazareth. There's there's a lot of evidence in the Bible, but that is, that is not really admissible in a discussion because you've got to bring evidence from outside of your own family. It's a bit like you can't go for a job um, interview and, and bring a testimonial about your character that's been written by your mother. Do you understand? <laughs> um, there's got to be reference from outside of your in-group. And, and sadly, uh, what we know about Jesus of Nazareth from outside the Christian writing and the Christian church and the Christian dogma and the Christian Bible is minimal. So we can't go and find the historical Jesus. But what we can explore is this notion of somebody who discovers the reality in themselves that they are the divine child of God, the Son of God to use the traditional term. It's that realization that Jesus has. And so the Christ is no longer this God notion up in heaven somewhere far away that you can't reach or that you can only reach through religious practices and through temples and through clergy and through paying um, certain tithes and offerings and doing certain kind of rituals and oblations and sacrifices. Jesus short-circuits that whole thing and says, no, 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 no. Your father is God and God is your father. And, and by the way, the kingdom of God is inside of you. If you're a conscious human being, you can be conscious of being divine in yourself. You don't need a temple for that. You don't need a priesthood for that. You don't have to go through this whole economical, uh, economic transaction of buying sacrifices and then making the sacrifice and, and keeping a whole cult going financially, this whole financial model that was the Jerusalem of Jesus' day. He overturns that, literally. He overturns the, the tables of, of the business, the religion as a business, 
which gets him killed. People don't want that. People want to monetize religious practice. Um, there's got to be uh, some income stream coming from this thing. Other, and, and if we can just sell little bits of the vision outside the cave to people, well, then we can keep them controlled. The radical Christ, the Christ I want to explore, turns all of that upside down and says to me, says to you, you can experience in your being the reality that not only is God in you, but you are like me, says Jesus, a child of God. You are, you are God. You don't have to give your life to God because God is already in you. The very fact that we breathe is for me such a powerful metaphor because as I'm recording this, Port Elizabeth is called the Windy City. There's a huge strong wind raging outside this room as I'm recording and, and I have huge gum trees outside and, and they're making a lot of noise. You might even be hearing some of it in the background. But it's interesting to me that in the ancient languages, uh, whether it's Hebrew or whether it's Greek or is it even in South Africans, indigenous languages like Zulu and Kosa and Sesutu, um, the word for spirit and the word for wind and the word for breath are all the same word. It's in Greek it's pneuma. Um, it is the the breath. So, so the wind and the breath, the evidence of life, and spirit are all the same thing in the ancient thoughts of our forefathers and mothers and it is the just if we could just bring ourselves to the breath and celebrate the fact that in this breathing maybe I'm not the one doing the breathing maybe I am being breathed and then we begin to glimpse some of the things that Jesus says about the kingdom of God is within me, that we are the children of God, that we are the temple of God, as St. Paul puts it. And in St. Paul's finest writing, some of his writings are really uh, quite prejudiced, but, but in his fine moments, St. Paul can say things like, in God we live and move and have our being. That is not believing. That is knowing. That is the direct experience of divinity. And it's that which we are going to explore in the radical Christ. Jesus didn't believe. Jesus knew. He knew from a young age that he had to be about his father's work. He knew deep within himself that God wanted to be accessible as close as a parent, as an Abba, as a father and a mother, a nurturing presence for each and every one of us. And so I hope you'll join me and I hope we'll have some fun as we explore some of the stories that Jesus told. Because you see, uh, belief always wants dogma, whereas, whereas knowledge and curiosity wants stories. Um, it's the stories that we tell. That, that really bring our life around and we, we are um, inveterate storytellers so we're going to be exploring some of the stories tell me the old old story we'll tell each other the old old stories that Jesus told 
that illustrated for us the radical nature of his reign, of the reign of life within us. And most importantly, there's no temple required. No temple required. So thank you for your attention and I look forward to continue this journey with you as on the Wounded Angel Network we have a look at the radical Christ. Thank you.